The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. The other day I received an email from a listener, Ken, who asked me the old question, why? Why are we here when heaven is so loving? Why is there suffering and sickness and death and other forms of evil? More specifically, listener Ken wrote, and I'll include his compliments, Hello, Lee. I recently discovered your interviews and want to tell you how much I enjoy them. You ask some very good questions. Thank you, Ken. I always like to go deeper and ask why. Why are things like this? There's a huge contrast between life here on earth and the way it is in heaven. So much beauty and love in heaven and a lot of pain and suffering for people here on this planet in the physical universe. I like to learn things in life, but does a soul need to go through all this suffering to learn it? When you get to heaven, then comes all the profound love from God, but before that happens, some souls go through hell before they get there. Does it really have to be this way? Signed, Ken. Well, as a hospital chaplain, I ran into variations on this question, gosh, I think probably several times a day. I also heard a variety of opinions answers the patients themselves had worked out through, well, perhaps their religious beliefs or their life experience or or even through their near-death experiences. So for today's show, I thought I'd try to provide some of the alternative answers I've encountered, um, both for listener Ken and for the rest of us living the life of Job here on planet Earth. And speaking of Job, by the way, the book of Job is... Historically, one of the oldest books, maybe the oldest book of the Old Testament, and is must-reading for anyone interested in answers to why. In fact, I even wrote a play when I was in seminary about a conversation between Job and Jesus, which perhaps someday on this show we'll I'll get a couple of other voices and we can, we can act it out together. Uh, the book of Job reflects a traditional Judeo-Christian belief that our final reward is intimately connected with God's creation and how we behave in it, and God's love and forgiveness in the end. Job declares, at the end, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. And myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. That's Job 19, 25 to 27. So according to the Judeo-Christian tradition, we suffer on earth as we do because Adam and Eve wanted more to be like God than to be loved by God. And they disobeyed him in order to gain the full knowledge of good and evil. Well, you might call the Garden of Eden a myth, if you will, but isn't that the behavior we are exercising in the world even today? We have specialized in the manipulation of knowledge so that now we know how to exploit the planet's resources, exploit the secrets of nature for both useful technology and also, unfortunately, for weapons of mass destruction. 
and exploit other nations and people, both socially and economically. That's uh, what a lot of wars are all about. So we are eating the forbidden fruit by the bushel full each day, and we are continuing to destroy the Garden of Eden, which I'd like to think of as Earth, nearly to the point of self-extinction. Interestingly enough, Jews, Muslims, and Christians all have a Messiah figure in their sacred writings, whom they hope will save us from ourselves, and perhaps save or even recreate the earth, or at least the city of Jerusalem as well. So the short answer is we are separated from God's love, and the world is full of suffering and grief because we use too much of our free will to become greedy, corrupt, and destructive. But here we have to pause for a minute to discuss the question of free will. A few shows back, I discussed the theory of uh, the theology, rather, of judgment, and I said I don't see how one person's behavior in one lifetime could be compared to another's in any reasonable way. How can you compare, for instance, the the uh, soul of a say a young child picking the dumps of Cairo, the city of Cairo, to somebody who's lived a very comfortable middle-class existence in the United States. Our lives are so colored by our circumstances, by our genetics, by our parentage, by our degrees of affluence or our degrees of poverty, by our exposure to religion or not, by degrees of education or not. Even the age and world circumstances we live in, the Etc. Etc. That's that's our life. That our life's course could uh, hardly be called free, given the circumstances of one life. But given many lives under different conditions, however, our soul's true yearnings could be more easily deciphered. So I, for one, think that reincarnation is the great equalizer. Now, how do uh, near-death experiences influence this interpretation? <clears throat> Well, for one, NDEs seem to indicate there is reincarnation, reaffirming our ties to the physical body and the physical world. Um, most Christians um, don't believe in reincarnation, uh, about 30%, according to some polls, uh, even though reincarnation was part of the Christian theology up until the 6th century. But uh, once somebody has gone through a near-death experience, uh, their chances of believing in reincarnation are more like 60 to 70%. In other words, we get many chances under the theory of reincarnation to be good Adams and Eves. But so far, unfortunately, it looks like greed is still overwhelming love. There is a minority-held corollary belief, I should mention here, that we are the fallen angels described in the Bible. And according to that story, a third of God's angels became prideful and followed Lucifer to earth. Church fathers of the 4th century believed these angels became the pagan gods and goddesses of ancient Greece and Rome. And actually, uh, they interbred with the human um, women, especially, that God had created. The idea has some appeal to the notion that we are being shepherded by our good brothers, the so-called uh, good angels or guardian angels. Uh, but whether we are humans 
fallen angels or a hybrid of the two, we still don't seem to be pulling ourselves up to heavenly status by our own bootstraps, are we? Our Garden of Eden remains corrupted regardless. Now let's look at the clues to why most near-death experiencers come back from heaven with, uh, though who and what they see there seem somewhat personalized, the basics remain. Heaven is a place of incredible beauty, reflecting nature on earth to a much heightened degree. There are meetings with deceased relatives, encounters with spiritual beings who care about us and instruct us, and then there is the light and love of God. And again, there's also reincarnation, a, a key element in listener Ken's question, why? Why, if heaven is so perfect, do we opt to return to the pain and suffering of earth? Well, it seems to imply guilt and obligation, even though many NDEers tell of a life review and are being our own worst judges concerning the evil we did in the world. Uh, do we return to do a better job on earth to win God's approval? Do we return like the Bodhisattva tradition to, to help others before we allow ourselves to enjoy the sweetness of God's presence? Or are we required to return? Are we required to return, to write the next chapter in the book of our lives? Every one of those scenarios have more whys attached to them, and I don't claim to have anywhere near the answers, but but we plow on. So, to summarize thus far, why is heaven so sweet and earthly life so sour? Well, theory one, Adam, Eve, and the rest of us gave up God's com companionship and love to pursue knowledge and power and screwed up this perfect creation in the process. And that's why we suffer. Or, theory two, we are condemned to return to life on earth again and again until we get it right on earth as it is in heaven, to quote the line from the Lord's Prayer. In the book of Job, God allowed Job to lose everything. Uh, just to test his character. And when Job questioned that, God's response seems to today's reader to be quite arrogant. And I'm going to read it to you because it's, it's not only is it, um, the Old Testament answer to, um, the weakness of Job, but it's also, uh, beautiful poetry. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, brace yourself like a man, I will question you. And you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash, unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust altogether. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you, and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins. What power in its muscles, in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar, the sinews of its thighs are close-knit. 
Its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. The hills bring in their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus lotus plants it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround it. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure, though the Jordan should surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? And he goes on, God goes on to Job. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength, and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? Its back has has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze, and flames dart from its mouth. Strength resides in its neck. Dismay goes before it. The folds of its flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. Its chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. And when it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron it treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Sling stones are like chaff to it. A club seems to it but a piece of straw. It laughs at the rattling of the lance. Its undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. It makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the seas like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. No one would think the deep had white hair. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. And with this presentation, Job replies to God. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things, 
No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job repents of audacity that he did not really uh, imply. I mean, God's comeback is so um, powerful. And yet, when we think about it, all of the things that God said Job could not do, it's almost as if we had taken them upon ourselves to go up against the power of God's creation and destroy it. We can take down Behemoth. We have stripped the seas of Leviathan until their whales are almost close to extinction. We do tear the skin off them. We use, uh, we use this creation in some horrendous ways. And so even though Job repents and has his life restored uh, as a reward, all his fam, well, new family and new riches are given to him, all the challenges God laid down in Job 40 to 42, uh, mankind has accomplished, sad to say. We can destroy God's creation. We are destroying God's creation. We're hell-bent on doing it. So Job may have repented in dust and ashes, but unfortunately we have not. And that's where the pain and suffering under this uh, look at Job uh, comes from in the world. Okay, let's look at an entirely different theory of why now. In his letter to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 to 7, St. Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Notice the tense here. Paul, um, if uh, as if in understanding that there's no time or that time is one, says we are already in heaven, seated in the heavenlies, as it were. Let me re- read the phrase again. Raised us up with him and seated us, past tense, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, what is this that we are experiencing right now? If we are already in heaven, well, it seems that it would be a matrix reality of our own devising. It has even been suggested that our lives are like a, a worldwide computer game. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. With our bodies, the avatars, being played by our souls in heaven. In that case, all the suffering 
uh, and the bad behavior that we acknowledge goes on here is not, in a true sense, real. Um, well, if that's the case, why would we play such a game? Why? And that's a why too far for me as well. To my way of thinking, matrix or not, we still aspire to be like God. A few shows back, um, Valerie Varan, who spoke at, at a, the last IONS conference on the subject, explored the fascinating links between near-death experience and quantum physics. And I would urge you to go back and listen to the two shows that she did. The last show in particular was interesting, I thought, because it was a discussion of the quantum physics of love. But since then, and also in response to Ken's question why, it seems to me things come along when they're meant to, a video on YouTube titled What is Reality was pointed out to me. And it's really well worth watching if you like having your mind blown. So let me give you a, a, a taste, just a taste of what it has to say. And I'm going to go over this um, slowly because it, I had to watch it twice even to get take the notes that I did. <clears throat> the film describes theoretical research on a theory of everything being conducted by Clee Irwin. Perhaps it's Clay, K-L-E-E, Irwin. And the group is called Quantum Gravity Research. Now, their basic idea is that there is an eight-dimensional crystalline form. Um, crystalline simply means uh, an, organizi- an organized form. Uh, the way uh, a checkerboard lays out, for instance, that is a, that is a crystalline in that it's um, it's a two-dimensional crystalline form, but it's it's an orderly pattern. And crystal, the the, the mineral crystal is also uh, laid out that way uh, structurally. But this is an eight-dimensional crystalline form, and what it does is it's used to project a four-dimensional, what they call a quasi-crystalline form, and that becomes the basis for our three-dimensional universe. And uh, along those lines, they offer some really intriguing ideas. And for example, the future creates the past, which then creates the future. The future creates the past, which then creates the future. Yikes, how can that be? Well, if you see all time as happening simultaneously um, and interacting with itself back and forth, then it's not so hard to um, envision, um, except as we deal with it in our own lives, it's hard to think that um, our future life is already influencing our past life or even today. Um, but that's that's the... Um, the physics, one of the physics of this, of this thing. Uh, here's another one. Our three-dimensional world is constructed of tetrahedron-shaped pixels. And I'll say more about pixels in a minute, but the tetrahedron are uh, as small as can be, uh, Planck-sized, um, and you'll have to watch the movie to understand that Planck is a length that is, can't be short. There's nothing shorter than a Planck length. Okay, jumping ahead again. Reality is made of information. Reality is made of information. Think of the um, 
Matrix movie and the and the flow of numbers and letters raining down on the green screen. And when it's interpreted, you you get a matrix picture of what we think of as as reality of life. But it's all uh, composed of information. And information, they go on, is meaning in the form of symbolism. And that uh, comes back to the tetrahedron. And that says that reality is basically geometric. It's organized. It's crystalline in that, in that nature as well. Another one. Meaning takes place by comparison. What gives meaning to what we look at? Well, it's subjective. We look at things comparatively. We look at a street and we know it's not a tree. We look at a tree and we know it's not a building. We know um, one from the other by comparison, which is subjective, and it requires consciousness, not only our consciousness, but the consciousness of the universe to give meaning to what there is. <laughs> okay. This goes back to the first sentence. All time exists at all the time. All time exists all the time. The past influences the future, and the future influences the past in what they call an endless feedback loop. And therefore, all time is affecting all time, all the time. Future, past, now. It's an inter interflowing, endless feedback loop. Reality is a massive neural network spanning space and time. And here is a big jump, which I found interesting, but perhaps not altogether compatible with um, my own thinking. It would be its own creator. Reality could be its own creator. Um, they go on to mention the, the old um, uh, experiment with light uh, breaking up through a through a hole in a and a slit. And it's, um, those experiments they mention are lights, uh, display of non-determinism. In other words, it's not a fixed thing. And they take that to mean that, that to indicate that there is free will. I hadn't heard that jump before, but it makes, it makes sense in the physics to, uh, in the leap from physics to our own lives. It may uh, fall short, but uh, but you can see you can see a relevance there. Perhaps reality is information created by observation by something conscious. And that's to go back again. Consciousness is a is a key, and consciousness um, is necessary to the existence of what is. Now they aren't suggesting God, but. Uh, they are open, interestingly enough, to the idea that we and the universe is a product of a supercomputer somewhere. Um, reinforcing that notion is that 3D space and time are pixelated. Pixelated means, you know, just like you see on your TV or your computer screen, um, things that break down into pixels. Um on our 2D computer screens, we see the, the picture is created out of pixels. They're saying that reality is created out of pixels, which would, eh, could imply, I guess, that we are really, um, coming off of somebody else's computer. 
Um, but the fundamental stuff of reality is consciousness. And then, almost on a romantic note, uh, mathematically speaking, the geometry tying this eight-dimensional crystalline form to the four-dimensional di- four uh, crystalline or quasi-crystalline form is um, the same ratio as black holes have and the recurring shapes in nature, seashells and flowers. It's the thing... It's the, it's the number we call the golden ratio. And that is way, is the way they can tie the quantum, uh, micro universe to the quantum universe as big as black holes. Uh, there is a link there, thereby. Anyway. Ken, there's not a why in all this that I could begin to explain. Yet I find it intriguing, even to its spiritual implications. Anyway, all of you should watch this 30-minute film, What is Reality, on YouTube when you get a chance. What the church calls Adam and Eve's original sin, the desire to know what God knows, is clearly still a part of the human condition. But so is the desire to merge with God's light and love. Curiosity killed the cat. And I'm not talking about Schrodinger's cat, I don't think, but they say. But it probably could kill us. I think we can't help but be curious, though. But in pursuing the fundamentals, we should not overlook our need to be loved, to, to love and to be loved. It is possible to love the creation and the creator both, but we get better, but we'd better get on with it if there is uh, still time enough. To quote the movie, all time exists all the time. Let's just call it for now and get busy. Well, that's all the time we have for today. My thanks to listener Ken's email, to the book of Job, and to the film What is Reality. If you'd like to listen to the show again or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. For information on IANS, check out their website at iands.org. And join us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.